Hey guys, just a quick heads up that this is the interview taken from the full The Gym Session podcast. So if you'd like to listen to the complete episode, you can find it on the Footy Live app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Buzzsprout. If you're enjoying the content, don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating, and share. If you're not, try to do it anyway so I can keep my job. Uh, that's all from me. Enjoy the interview and do all that stuff I said before so I can get my job. Morton has to fish for it. Still fishing. No one's got him. And he's hooked a big one. He can kick a goal, this man. Morton puts it through. That's his second. Okay, today's guest is a premiership hero who spent nine years in the AFL system playing 83 games and kicking 116 goals. Through his time at West Coast, Richmond and Sydney, this man established himself as a clever forward who could snap a goal from any angle. He not only won a Michael Roach medal in 2009 as the Tigers' leading goal kicker, he became a finals hero in 2012 after four goals in the series, including a double in the Swans' incredible premiership triumph over Hawthorne. Through his career, he battled with severe anxiety and after overcoming problems by learning about the condition post-footy, he started up his own business to help others who are facing similar problems. Through seminars, podcasts, and daily tips, this man is continuing to support the community in living the best life possible. It is my great pleasure to welcome Mr. Anxiety himself, Mitch Morton, to the podcast. Welcome, Mitch. A very nice intro. Well uh, well researched, well delivered. Well done, mate. Thanks for having me. It's um, good to be here. No, my pleasure, mate. And I'm a big fan of yours uh, on on the field, but also off it. And I just want to say congrats quickly on the weekend. Lazy nine goals for you. I think it was your uh, your fourth game of the year or, or something like that. But is it true that that was the first time or this year was the first time you hadn't thrown up before a game in, in since you were about 15? Yeah, I think 2002. Mm. I had my first experience. Um, well, it wasn't the first time I'd ever thrown up before yeah. a sporting event, uh, but it was when it started with football and it kind of became really normal to me. I look back now and I kind of wonder why I pushed myself through it. But at the time, you know, in life things kind of get better and things get worse, you know, gradually <laughs> in little increments as I call it. And, yeah, for me I just started vomiting and it kept happening and then it became really normal and I did it for 19 years and this year I've finally been able to play a game of football. That was the first one I've got through four quarters, which was fun. <laughs> uh, but for me, you know, it's not about the goals and stuff like that. It's about having energy and enjoying the day. And I felt like on the weekend I had more energy than I've ever had well, since, you know, for a long time on a football field and it's such a nice feeling. Yeah. Such a nice feeling. It's hard to explain. Yeah, no, I can imagine. It's incredible that every game you played, you'd throw up before it. it. It's incredible to hear that. And and I heard you speak about anxiety starting as early as when you were seven, like before a running race, you'd, you'd throw up and things like that. But it really kicked in when you're about 15. Um, before that, you were, you were like a, a happy-go-lucky kid. You always had a footy in your hand. You went to boarding school. You loved it. You lived in a small country town. Now, is it is it true that you live next door, literally next door to Nat Fife? Yeah, so... Literally next door. Yeah. And we're not talking about, it is a farming community like yeah. Grace, but we're not talking about farms where the houses are a couple of kilometers apart. Literally yeah. we're talking next door. So we shared the same fence. Our cat Felix jumped the fence one day and never came back. So <laughs> the Fife's ended up looking after our cat and became their cat. So that's how close we were with yeah. the Fife's and everybody else on the street. So um, we were very, very lucky to grow up where we grow up. And I think Nat would say the same thing. Mm-hmm. You still keep in contact with Nat? Well, Nat's a fair bit younger than me. Yeah. Uh, not particularly, but when we see each other, it's always nice to catch up. I see his parents probably more 
mm-hmm. and I see him um, heading back to Lake Grace to play football this year. I, I, I bump into David and Christine a fair bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's good to see them as it is with everybody else back in that community. Yep. Yeah. So you were drafted to West Coast at 17, I believe, as a uh, 2004 draft. You, you arrived at the Eagles during a successful time, obviously. Um, what was the club um, culture like for you personally? Now, I know you've mentioned it was like a, ran like a tight ship. Also, guys, were, you know, like Chris Judd were at the peak of their celebrity status and you'd walk in the street with them and people would be screaming at, at Juddy. What was that like to walk into that kind of environment? Well, it was a kind of – it's a double-edged sword because – it was it was amazing to see that machine in action, mm. and that side was phenomenal. I would argue that that is probably the best midfield that's ever been put on a football field. Yeah. Judd, Kerr, Cousins, Embley, Cox, Braun, Fletcher, Stengline. That is, I think that's the best yeah. midfield, and I got to witness, I got to train with them every day. I got to you know be part of that, so that was unbelievable, and I still apply lessons that I learned in my life from those people, you know, um, and the way they went about it now in what I'm doing now. So that was fantastic, but I couldn't get a game. So, you know, I was seeing all these other kids who were drafted in a similar age to me in the bottom four or five teams, you know, got given the first 40 or 50 games. Here you go, go and get better. And, you know, myself and Matt Rosa and Mark LaCroix and Bo Wilkes, who's now Bo Meister, and all these guys were fighting to get one game. It was too hard. You know, we we're playing really, really well in the waffle and couldn't get a call. So it's really hard. It's really hard going to a good club. We're seeing that this year with the number one draft pick. I don't know his name, but I've read in the Yeah, Jamari Hagen. Yeah. Yes. So he uh I don't follow footy that closely, but I've seen that he played his first game on the weekend. That's challenging. And I've seen mm-hmm. that he'd been under a bit of pressure and wasn't in the good form and stuff like that. That's really challenging because yeah. if he goes to a bottom side, they'll give him two years of games. And guess yeah. how you and guess how you get used to playing AFL football? Have a guess. Playing by playing. <laughs> so how do you reckon his mindset is? Very yeah, very difficult. Right. Yeah. For someone like me who was struggling with anxiety, I found that really hard. Mm. Really hard. So it was a really, like I say, uh, bittersweet yeah. um, pill to swallow going into that club because it was amazing seeing such a well-oiled machine in action. It was honestly amazing, but then very hard not getting many games for the first three years. Yeah, you you just said then that it was hard to deal with that, especially with your anxiety, but you didn't really realise it was anxiety at that time, did you? I knew something was wrong. I call yeah. that period of my life WTF, the WTF <laughs> phase, because yeah. I knew something was wrong, but this was in 2004. Yeah. We didn't talk about anxiety and depression like we do now. <laughs> and this is why I started the startup that I have, is to talk about it so that other people can acknowledge what's going on and feel comfortable putting their hand up because I didn't and then I spiraled and I'm very, very lucky to be sitting here because a couple of things that I've done in my life could have gone either way. So I knew something was wrong and I kept going to the doctor saying there's something wrong with me and I would Google syndromes and diseases and things that mm. that the main symptom was low energy because one of the things about anxiety, and I think you have to have anxiety to understand this, you can't sit still but you have no energy. That's a really, really weird predicament to be in. Because being in fight or flight mode constantly and being worried all the time drains you of energy, but you find it very difficult to just sit, yeah. sit, sit still. So I knew something was wrong and I would go to the doctor and we would do a blood test. I think I did eight in my first year or two. And it was kind of this just kind of get on with it, Mitch, was kind of the, 
which was, you know, it's 2004. I don't hold any grudges, but I knew something was up and it took a long, long time to work out what it was. Mm. Yeah. Well, you're still during that Richmond period, you didn't exactly work out what it was, but you had a good, a good time there. I think you've said 2008, 2009 were your your best years. You obviously won the Michael Roach medal. You were there during a, a transitional time, I think from Terry Wallace. And then you had Damien Hardwick as a coach as well. I think you've said your secret, you believe looking back in hindsight, to playing good football was the time you spent playing golf. So you nearly went and played golf nearly every day. Yeah. So, so a few of us, I'd never really played any golf other than the odd hit here and there, like anyone does with their mates until I went to Richmond and there was a group of about 10 players who were playing regularly once a week Mm. out at Waterford. I think it's called out near Ringwood there in Melbourne. And we'd go out there once a week and I was horrendous. (laughs) I'd shoot 120. I'd come last. I was no good. But then I kind of just, it made me feel good. Mm. And, I, and, I, and I, it's only now that I've been able to look back and knowing what I know now about the physiology and the neuro, neuro, neurology of anxiety, what it's actually doing when you do something like that. When you have a hobby and with golf, you're chasing this kind of feeling. Mm. You're chasing that, that feeling of hitting the ball. And that's really, really good for people with anxiety because chasing a feeling gets you out of your head. It gets you in, back into feeling things in your body, which is... Yeah what you lose when you get anxiety. And so the end of the season came around and I took off to golf school in Queensland. Mm. I hired a Hyundai Gets up on the, on the, on the Gold Coast and I yeah. uh, went to this golf school and I come back and I was the best golfer there. So <laughs> that kind of sums me up as a person. I kind of like to, to throw myself into things, but yeah. I got addicted to that and I didn't know it at the time, but that was actually giving me a break from being anxious. Mm. And I fell in love with it and uh, me and Jack Rewalt, we're very, very good friends when I was yep. playing at the Tigers and we were playing golf <laughs> a stupid amount. We were pretty, we got pretty good at it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, just by the sheer amount of time we were spending and obviously playing AFL footy, you get to meet some other professionals and we met some pro golfers and struck up an awesome friendship with the guys from the house of golf in Malvern mm-hmm. and uh, playing a lot of golf with them and end up playing cricket with them. And we had a lot of fun. It was great times, but I didn't realize until probably the last, 12 or 18 months, what that was doing for me Mm. and how good that was for me. And that's why I played my best football because I was actually giving myself a break from being anxious and it was allowing me to kind of recoup energy. And then I was playing the most energetic football that I played Mm. outside of that, the rest of my career, I just felt like I had no energy and, you know, I'm aware that people are going to look at that as an excuse. I don't really care to be honest because I feel like I've got that back and I'm, I've kind of got the energy that I used to have in life back. And it's it's a great, it's a great feeling. Yeah. Brilliant. I'm really curious about um, what Richmond was like at that time. Obviously it's, it's been well publicized that the big culture shift um, since 2017 at Richmond, but, but back then, what was the club like? You said it was very different to West coast, but in what ways? Well, Every club's different and it's, it's, a, it's a good experience, I think, getting, to, getting to, to, to go to a couple of different clubs and see how they run. Mm. I think West Coast had uh, at the time a lot more money to spend on football operations and in, in their budget and stuff like that and you probably saw that. I saw that in the way that they prepared and that Richmond kind of oh, were on their knees at the time. Mm. I think that's when they had the Fighting Tiger Fund and, Brendan Gale came back and tried to keep the club going. It was a really, really difficult time, and that's that's when we we were there. So they didn't quite have that budget, and yeah. you know, there wasn't quite the same facilities. Um, you know, everyone was working just as hard as everyone was at West Coast, but it was just a different uh, type of environment. Mm. Um, then, obviously, the change of coach came in. 
which probably I was probably more in Terry Wallace's plans because he got me there. Whereas Damien Harbert got his own group of players in, you know, Sean Grigg and Basha Hooley and guys like that. He brought them in and then 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 they obviously drafted players and that they were yep. kind of their priority, um, which is just human nature. Um, and at the time, oh, I was probably a little bit out of those plans. I, you know, I won't harp on it, but I, I, to really dig in and change a coach's opinion of you takes a lot of effort. Mm. And I struggled with that big time. Yep. I struggled yep. to find the energy to really dive in yeah. to it and really, really turn things around. I tried my best, but um, it was a challenging period for me because I went from being someone who was kind of picked to someone who had to really, really fight. Mm. Um, and I still had a few games, a few decent games um, under Damien Harbick. I played a few decent games on a wing at the end of 2010. I got a Brownlow vote. That was that was fun <laughs> getting a Brownlow vote, getting yeah. your name, get called out. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I kind of went out of the plans, which is, you know, that's fine. Did what I had to do to get another opportunity in Sydney and um, obviously very, very lucky to be a part of that that team and have the opportunities that were given to me there. Um, but yeah, great experience, such a good experience to go across three different clubs. Richmond obviously had the culture change at the end, the end of 2017. And people say to me, what was Damien Harbwick like as a coach? Yeah. And I say to people, every single coach in the AFL is a good coach. You don't make it to the AFL without being a good coach. You do your time as an assistant and you learn. And, and he was a good coach. I, I just wasn't in his plans. Mm. That's and what that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, he's like you know what I you know if I had my time again, and I was didn't have the anxiety, I wouldn't have wouldn't have done anything different. I probably just would have worked harder to change his opinion. Mm. That that's all. I don't hold anything against him. I I just wish I had the ability to work harder and and change that opinion. Yeah. Yeah, Well, it would have been hard, obviously with the anxiety that you had. And I think you said that a Richmond coach, I wasn't sure if it was Terry Wallace or Damien Hardwick asked you, you know, why do you start games so well? And then at the end you, you drop off a bit. And that was the energy levels. As you said, you you couldn't sleep well. You just used up all your energy and and you're thrown up before games. So you couldn't run out games. And like you said, only this weekend you ran out four quarters. So it would be hard to prove yourself to a coach for sure. Yeah, I found it really difficult and I touched on it before. You know, people are going to, you know, see this as an excuse, but they're welcome to do an experiment. Go for a run with one of your mates who's around the same fitness level as you and when you wake up in the morning, have your breakfast, put your fingers down your throat and vomit it back up and then have a couple of power aids and then do the same and then try and eat a sandwich before the game and then do the same and then run 10K against your mate. Try it. It's really difficult. And what happens is I was able to kind of push hard for the first quarter or so. Mm. Honestly, I'd go out after halftime. I'd normally vomit again at halftime. And that half that warm-up after halftime, I was struggling yeah. to get through the warm-up. The warm-up, which is a couple of running drills. And yeah. then the and then the, and then the, the heat would come on and the, the game would start. And I'd try my best, but I mean you're playing against guys that are in the peak of the you know, physical um they're in their peak physical form they're ever going to be in and they're, you know, and it's hard. It's really hard. AFL is a hard enough game as it yeah. is. So the reason that I talk about this stuff and bring it up and I'm so open with it is because there are other people out there right now and it might not be AFL football, but they're in their job and they're going through exactly this in their job. Yeah, They've got a boss who's kind of putting a bit of pressure on them and there's someone next to them who's getting all this praise and they're just not, things just aren't working for them. They're trying, they're trying, but they're not sleeping Maybe they're having issues with their food. They're overthinking things. They've just got no energy. And I'm here to tell people that is not normal. 
Mm. The way I played my football career is not normal. It's not normal. It wasn't enjoyable and it's not normal to go out against guys who, are, who, who, who aren't going through that and try to have to compete. So if you're going through something like that, you've got to find a way to deal with it. You've got to find yeah. a way to deal with it. We'll be back after a quick break. to Sydney obviously 2012 it was a, it was a good year to move actually uh, you play really well in the reserves that year you kick bags of goals you kick over 70 goals and you're actually selected in the team but you find out that someone in the leadership group didn't want you in the team because they said they couldn't trust you now I can imagine going through that hard work to get there and with the anxiety you're going through that must have been a pretty difficult time to find out that you're not trusted from the leadership group yeah well I got picked to play halfway through the year and they kind of vetoed it and said, no, we don't, don't want him in the side. He's got more work to do on his game. And I'd kind of been conditioned that. So what had happened is I'd been dropped a few times early in my career and they said kind of work on this and I'd kind of work on that and then kind of nothing would come of it. And, you know, I'd ended up just end up going back to the way I used to play and kicking a few goals and then I'd come in and it was just, I'd been conditioned to not trust that if I went back and really worked on what they wanted, I would reap rewards from it. Mm. And they're the one, sorry, they're the one percenters and the pressure acts you're talking about. Yeah. Just the pressure and yeah. yeah, And the tackling and stuff like that. So I always, by the time I'd got to Sydney, I had in my mind, well, I've got to work on what they tell me to work on, but I've also got to kick 10 goals. Mm. So I would kind of try and do both, which is hard work. Yeah. (laughs) And they could see me trying to do both. And it wasn't that I didn't tackle. I just wasn't, putting all of my attention on it. And that's what they wanted. Yeah. And so that was a really frank discussion. And then towards the end of the year, I started to, you know, focus way more on that and then didn't worry so much about the goals and stuff like that, the offensive stuff. And my last couple of games of reserves before getting into the senior side, I didn't kick many goals at all, mm-hmm. but I put on a lot of pressure and tackling and that's what I came in for. Yeah. And if you look at my final series, I kicked a few goals, but if you talk to the players, it's probably the, Pressure. I had nine tackles in the prelim final. We kicked six or seven goals from them in a game that we only won by four or five. So they're the things that the players that played and the coaches pick up. So that was what I kind of brought to the table for the finals was that pressure stuff. And I did it. And obviously I was very lucky to to be part of a successful side and the goals were kind of a bonus. Yeah, no, the brilliant goals and the, the brilliant uh, impact you had straight away uh, when you played that quali- qualifying final against Adelaide and you kick, you kick two goals. And um, you, you spoke 
I think you've said previously that it was Adam Goods who you had a chat to and he originally was the one who said he needs to do more before he gets to the team and then you did more and you earned their trust um, by that. And like you said, it's it's unfortunate to hear that you, you had no faith in the system because previously coaches would say, go out and do this and you'll get picked or, or you won't get dropped and, and they did the opposite. But is that the is that the um, the message like communication and that sort of thing? Was that the thing that was different at, at the Swans or that trust you had for each other? Uh, in the playing group? Well, I'd been burnt. I, I won't say where it was, but I'd been yeah. dropped and gone back to reserves earlier in my career. And they told me I wasn't tackling enough. Yeah. So I went out and I had 15 tackles. And I went back in excited for my review. Mm. And the coach said, anyone can have 15 tackles if that's all they're trying to do. <laughs> so that was the conditioning that I yeah. had. Yeah. So when I got to the Swans, it took me a while to understand that when they say go out and tackle, they mean go out and tackle at the expense of other stuff. Yeah. So it took me a while to trust that. And the thing is when I played a couple of games as sub, got dropped from sub round 23, Swans went down to Geelong, got beaten by 50 points. If they win that game, we're not having this conversation. (laughs) They don't change the side. Who knows where I end up. But they lost by 50 points. They played four tolls. And it didn't work. And so they wanted to bring me in for my pressure. (laughs) The thing is, on the Wednesday, I got told I was playing. I walked past Jared McVeigh, who was captain at the time. And Jared said, you know what you need to do this week? And he just kind of winked at me. And that was it. They didn't need to, no one needed to have a conversation with me. I'd I'd been reconditioned to the Swan system and they knew what I was going to bring to the table. They knew it. I knew what I was going to bring to the table. So I went into that final series really confident of my role and what I needed to do. Um, so it was, it all worked out in the end. It'll yeah. work out in the end. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell me about grand final day? Because I love watching it back and those two goals were brilliant. The classic trademark snaps uh, through the big sticks and it was such a big moment. And, and you, at the end, you, you contributed to the difference at the end of the, at the end of the day. And that those second quarter goals were so crucial, but I've heard you speak about it, that you were, you know, you threw up 10 times before the game or even at quarter time and half time. Did you look back on that memory fondly or is it kind of, it reminds you of how much anxiety you had when you think of grand final day, what, what memories come back for you? That whole, from I'd say the prelim, I'd started to really fall apart. Mm. I, I hardly slept that weekend of the prelim. We played on a Friday. I was just beside myself. I thought I was going to get dropped. Um, the coaches, John Longmire told me on the Monday that I was playing a war. Yeah. They had never made that decision. They just knew that they just knew that I wouldn't sleep if they didn't tell me I was playing. So they just told me and they thought I'd deal with the consequences later. And grand final day was the first day. I obviously often wouldn't sleep a lot before games, but that was the first day that I bought my dinner up the night before. So I'd actually, by the time of the game, I'd actually gone 24 hours without eating. I couldn't keep Powerade down. Yeah. So I only played, I played less than 50% of the game. You know, I, it was, it was a really hard day. Mm. I had no energy at all. I felt, I sat the last 12 or 13 or 14 minutes on the bench um, and was, went off and was just like, I can't go back on. I, I, I don't have the energy. If, if something big happens, there's a big moment. I, I, I just, I don't want to cost the team. So I was very, very happy sitting on the bench for that last bit. And I felt like I'd, I'd done it. I'd done what I could do for the day. I look back on it and 
I'm proud of what I achieved and unbelievably humbled to be part of that team. And I think it got voted in the top three get AFL grand finals ever. So very, very, very humbled to be part of that day. And it gives me an unbelievable strength to know that I can get through anything. Mm. So what I'm doing now with the Mr. Anxiety Project and teaching other people how I've learned anxiety has been challenging because getting up on stage in front of 50 people who have paid and got in their car and driven and parked in the city and come to listen to you, that can be nerve-wracking. Going through that process of getting comfortable in that situation is hard, but I know from my experience playing football and that, that we can push through a lot. Mm-hmm. We can push through a lot. So I'm really proud of what I achieved and super humbled to be a very, very small cog in the awesome machine that was the Swans of 2012. So I look back on it fondly, but it was a really tough day, really yeah. tough day for me, vomiting and the nerves and the anxiousness. And I'd found it very difficult in the finals to hold the football. So uh, if you look at my kicks in the grand final that weren't snaps, they all went sideways straight to the opposition. I, 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 I was so nervous. My hands were shaking. But luckily when you kick a snap, you kind of just drop the ball and let let gravity yeah. guide it onto your foot, which is a little bit different to the way that you kick with a drop punt. So very lucky to get those two opportunities that I had, um, mm. which were snaps. Otherwise, I'm not sure how I would have gone from a set shot from 40. <laughs> no, you should be very proud, but to get through it with, with what you were going through is incredible. I'm interested in, in hearing about, so I think you said about 24, 25, you, you find out it's anxiety, you pinpoint, this is what I've got. The doctor, when he tells you, you've gone, yes, well, I finally know why I'm feeling this way. Um, you tried different things. I think you said you tried medications, you tried speaking to people and nothing really worked for you. So you decided to just um, study for yourself and, and kind of find your own solution. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so things came to a head. I spiralled after football. I won't go too much into it, but, uh, you know, people can use their imagination. Um, just picture doing stupid stuff for five years and trying to numb the pain of yep. feeling so average about yourself. Picture where that gets to after five years and had a couple of moments which, yeah, like I said, could have gone either way, pretty scary stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of 2018, I remember walking out of a, therapy session and thinking I'm in a worse state and I'd been to 250 or 270, 280 therapy sessions in across 15 years. I remember thinking I'm now in a worse state than when I walked into my first one. And I thought there has to be another way. And I tried everything. I'd been on all these different meds, really intense, heavy ones that are, you know, require supervision to go on to months of weaning on and off them and stuff like that. Had some horrific experiences on them. Heats of therapy sessions, online courses, seminars, weekend seminars, self-help books. I'd tried everything Mm. and I'd actually pretty much given up. And I just thought if this thing is going to ruin my life, maybe if I can just understand it, like I wanted to understand neurologically what's happening when I get anxiety physiologically or what's actually happening. That's all that the kind of project that I went on, which has evolved into Mr. Anxiety. That's all it was about understanding what's actually wrong with me. Yeah. So the first book I picked up was on trauma and how we, what happens physiologically when we are exposed to trauma because anxiety, essentially living in a state of anxiety like that is pretty much trauma. You know, trauma is very subjective. So some people probably think that you have to go to war to get traumatized, but you don't. Anything can be trauma to, to, to an individual. <laughs> and I picked up a book on 
uh, neuroplasticity and stuff like that. And I just went on this research project trying to understand what was wrong with me. And as I started to build a, I guess, an idea of what was happening, I started to understand how different anxiety is to what people think it is. Mm-hmm. It's very, very different. You know, there's a, there's a lot at play. It's not just those anxious thoughts are just a byproduct of this other system coming online, which is when we think we're in danger. And it's a very old system that we're turning on by accident. And once I started to understand the role of the mind and the body, which work together in that system, I started to see a way of dealing better with my anxiety. And that work and all the research I did was based on medical professionals. It wasn't written by, um, it wasn't written by some random person who just decided to write a book about anxiety. It was, it, this stuff is like, from medical professionals, doctors, psychiatrists, neuroscientists. You know, the person who's probably impacted me the most is a psychiatrist named Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. His work is like, it's like I think about it all the time. It's mm-hmm. changed my life. So, you know, it's by people who are credible. And I started to figure out ways to, and I would reach out to them and chat to them on Instagram yeah. and over email and have phone calls with neuroscientists and go and meet the neuroscientists at Curtin Uni and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And started to, piece together this kind of understanding of anxiety and way that I could deal with it. And then I started to feel better. Yeah. I started to apply these principles and started to feel better. And I'd planned on going back into banking and finance, which is what I have education in, but I started to feel better. And then I started to realize, wow, I cannot believe the way I've lived my life. Mm-hmm. I cannot believe that I used to vomit every day and think that that's normal. Yeah. And the big thing was just the lack of energy. I can't believe that I used to not want to do anything. And I, you know, so other people are going through that. So then naturally you're just like, well, I want to help other people. And it's mm-hmm. really, really rewarding to not so much like, oh, I'm helping other people. It's kind of like, I don't swear much, but it's kind of like a F you to anxiety. It's like, yeah. you know, F you, like you, 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 you cost me so much opportunity in my life. Now I'm like, you know, giving back to other people, mm-hmm. trying to help them. Like that's like you know, my little F you to anxiety and what it did to me. So yeah, I really, really enjoy what I get to do now. And I'm in a stage where I'm on top of mine. I'm helping other people, but it's hard turning it into a business. Like really, really hard. Yeah. I love yeah. it. I could do it. You know, and at the moment I'm pretty much living off my savings and we get some income from the talks and stuff like that, which yeah. is great. But yeah, turn monetizing something that's a passion is is difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I want people to check out Mr. Anxiety, obviously on Instagram and the, and the website and you're doing your daily activities. You've got the daily podcast that you're doing every yep. morning, which is, which is brilliant. And you're helping people uh, who are going through a similar thing. Is there, the first step obviously is to admit that you, you have a problem, isn't it? Uh, because a lot, uh, you've said this as well. You grew up in a country town and it was kind of like being a man is just like pushing through like, oh, mate, you know, get over it. Let's walk through. It doesn't matter. And I can see that as well. You know, I played local footy and I went to an all boys school and that's the kind of the thing, but is the message, the first step is to go, Hey, it's not, you're not being weak. If, if you got anxiety, like, you know, it, it's a, people go through this. It doesn't make you weak. It's actually being a man to identify that. Is that the kind of message you want to send or what, what's that the message you want to tell people for the first step? I think the main thing is that when we get issues in life, we start doing the when, when, when I get here, yeah. when I get this, okay. when I get that, when I get that person, when I get, I'll be happy. 
or yeah. my anxiety would go away. And I was the king of that. Mm. I used to always think that when this next thing happened, my anxiety would go away. Yeah. But the thing is we never actually arrive at a destination. We're always traveling. So people think you win an AFL grand final, oh, for the next year. It's a great feeling, but it's built up because you mm. win a qualifying final first and then a prelim and then it's kind of like you build your way up to things. Yeah. You never actually, There's never actually this one moment where you arrive at a destination. So life's about the journey, the day-to-day. You've got to be in a good frame of mind and then be enjoying what you're doing day-to-day because those when moments, they never, ever come. The future isn't a real thing. The fu- Tomorrow is just now at a different time. There's never this future thing that's going to come along. Mm-hmm. However you're feeling now will be how you're going to feel forever. So you've got to put time into how you're feeling now. So I always thought that by gritting my teeth and pushing through, I would end up getting somewhere. Mm-hmm. But then no matter where I got, you know, played my first AFL game, still anxious, you know, played a full season for the Tigers, still anxious, won the Michael Roach medal, still anxious, you know, traded to Sydney, win a grand final, still anxious, went back to uni, got a degree, still anxious, got a, um, you know, decided dating a new girlfriend, still anxious, just like, when's it going to stop? So you have to break that cycle. And to break that cycle, how we do that is different for everybody. How we do that is different for everybody. So at one end of the spectrum, we have going into what I call the system, which is the medical system, which didn't work for me, but works for a lot of people. Try it out. Go and talk to your GP, your psychologist. They're fantastic. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have what I believe to be the best treatment for mental health issues, which it would be going and living with Buddhist monks for three or four months because they would just get you completely out of your head and get you back to just being able to sit with yourself and feeling comfortable in your own skin again and feeling good about yourself, feeling safe. So that's what I believe would be the best treatment for for these types of things. That's my opinion. We live in a free world and I'm allowed to have it. But that's that's not possible at the moment to go and live in one of those places because of COVID. So in between that spectrum, we've got all these different things that you can try. You can go to a counsellor. You can go try yoga, meditation, sound immersion therapy. You can follow people like me on Instagram who have my own way of dealing with it. Mm. And what you do is you start to piece together your own kind of understanding of it and different little tools that you can take. My advice is to take little bits from everyone. Go and talk to a psych and take a little bit of that. Take a little bit of something you learn from yoga. Take a little bit of something you learn from me. Take a little bit of something you learn from someone else you follow and put it in a blender, as I say. Mm -hmm. Put it in a blender and come up with something that works for you because the way we live as a society is getting so far away from the way that we evolved that it's getting pretty hard to stay mentally healthy. It's getting pretty hard. So you got to find little ways that you can deal with stuff. So what that is for each individual is different, Mm -hmm. but I just want people to put time into it. I just want people to say, this isn't right. The way that I'm living, it's not normal. You know, I've got a photo that I put up on, on my stories on Instagram of, me when I was 17 and I'm smiling and I'm happy. Yeah. And then another photo of me when I'm 26 and I've got this frown, which I've actually got, I don't frown anymore, but I've got scars there. And I'll put a photo up saying, this isn't how you live. This yeah. is frowning like that. We only get one chance at this life. <laughs> you know, we're here to have a good time. We're here to, here, to, here to connect and be with people and be part of communities. Yeah. And if you're not in that frame of mind, you've got to find a way to get back into it. And that's all that I want to get across to people. It's not, Mm-hmm. me saying this is how i've done it go and do it it's just go out there and find what works for you yep. 
I love that. I love that, Mitch. Hey, I do 10 quick questions with all my guests to, to finish off before I, I do that. This is one thing I want to ask you, though. In 2013, you said, I don't think there's ever been a point in my life where I've truly been content, to be honest. What about now? How are you feeling? Are you content with your life? Are you happy? Has it changed since then massively? That's a, Yeah, that's a good question. And it's hard not to do the when thing again, isn't it? Yeah. Because, you know, like I said, I've I've always had jobs that were quite well paying. I was in a six-figure government job before this one that I left to do this startup, but I never enjoyed them. And then now I have this job that I love. Mm. Uh, I love getting to talk to people and connect and share what I've learned and hope that it helps them. But I'm kind of living off my savings and trying to turn it into a business. So there's that challenge. Yeah. But I think I'm the most content that I've been. And I think it's a work in progress. It's kind of like a spectrum as well. It's like, you know, we have, you know, people that have severe, you know, mental illness who are in hospitals and, you know, really, really unlucky to be in that, 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 that place. And they can't really sit with themselves at all. And then on the other end, we have Buddhist monks and the rest of us float between that. So we're kind of, I'm trying to push myself towards the, you know, the Buddhist monks, but mm-hmm. you know, it's a challenge sometimes, but yeah, I really love what I'm doing and feel lucky that I'm in this position because it could have gone either way. Um, but I'm still working on that. Yeah. No, great to hear, mate. I absolutely love it. Uh, 10 quick questions, Mitch. Uh, yep. The first thing that comes to your head, mate. Okay. Uh, number one, what's your favorite movie? Uh, Inception. Inception. Very good. Your, your favorite teammates of all time. Oh, Alex Rance is probably the yeah. funniest human being I've ever been in a, in a room with. Yeah. Yep, very Classic. funny. Yeah, he's yeah. a good man. Uh, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Oh, great question. I, I love the movies. Like, I'm obsessed with Hollywood movies. Yeah. So I think I'd love to live in LA for a bit. Yeah. 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 That'd be good. Uh, your favourite quote of all time? Uh, for as this appalling ocean surrounds this verdant land... So in the soul of man lies an insular Tahiti full of peace and joy, but surrounded by the horrors of a half-lived life. Very nice. Inside all of us, inside all of us is peace, but it's Mm -hmm. it's there somewhere. Gotta find it. Yep. Love it. Uh, If you could choose anyone in the AFL to take a shot after the siren to save your life, who would it be? I'll say uh, Jack Rewalt because that, yeah. that set shot in last year's grand final oh, was just insane. Yeah, and, and, he, and he's an old mate of mine, so I'll, mm-hmm. I'll back him in. Yeah, brilliant. He's my favourite too. Uh, you love your burgers, I know that. What, what's your favourite burger ever? Favourite burger ever? Yeah. Oh, that's a really tricky question. Perth actually has some unbelievable. I can't believe yeah. I'm saying this. You know, Perth <laughs> normally a bit, bit behind the time. Yeah, Perth yeah. is nearly. Perth probably has the best burgers in Australia. Oh, really? Yeah, Perth is somehow, I don't know how we've done it. I'll say my number one burger in Perth is, uh, oh, that's a tricky question. Tricky question because well, there's so many. You've got to pick one, Mitch. Okay, I'll go with the Texan burger at Varsity Bar. Oh, they'll love that. That's yep. good. And that's a big call too because you've obviously lived in Sydney and Melbourne as well, so you'd know the best burger joint. All right, yep. who is your hero? My hero, someone I look up to. I love, well, I think my father. Mm-hmm. I think my father's provided for me and always been there for me. Yep. And I, yeah, my parents, I wouldn't be where I am right now, you know, without their, their support. Mm-hmm. Yep. My dad, Good choice. Worked, my dad works his absolute butt off. You know, he's yep. a livestock agent. 
he's still out there weighing sheep at 60 years of age, getting, you know, he's, 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 he's a very hardworking man. Mm. Oh, good. Uh, Sunday afternoon, you can do anything you want. You're free. I know you don't have a lot of free time these days, but what are you doing free afternoon on Sunday? Oh, I'm back into golf, so I'd probably be... Oh, you're back? Yeah, good. Yeah, I just got the bug back. I'm just loving it. So yeah. I'd be at, the, be at the driving range. Yep. yep. Good yep. one. All right. Uh, if you could be any cartoon character, who would you be? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I will say cartoon character. I don't really watch cartoons. Mm-hmm. Any, uh, any. The Roadrunner. Oh, the Roadrunner, yeah. I used to like that one because it was fast, yeah. Yeah, very quick. Yeah. I yeah. love it. All right, last one. What is your favourite song? Favourite song? Oh, well, I like Vance Joy yeah. uh, because I, play, I played footy with him. So oh, did you? At Coburg, yeah, James Keogh. So oh, yeah. That's, I've got a funny story about that, but I won't, yeah. won't tell it now. Um, no. oh, ne- next one then. Yeah, next <laughs> one. Um, so I probably I like his I like his music. So what's my favourite one of his? Um, Riptide, maybe? Riptide, yeah. Yep. That's yep. perfect. Yep. Hey, yep. Mitch, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, mate. I could speak to you all day, really. I, I loved watching you on the field, but your off-field stuff is absolutely phenomenal. Insights, you're very inspirational, mate. So I hope everyone gets on to uh, Mr. Anxiety and it looks at your stuff and I can't thank you enough for joining me today, mate. Thanks for having me, mate. I appreciate it. No no problem at all. We'll chat soon, mate. See you, mate.